Amen. Amen. Have a seat. James chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles just under the seat in front of you. Feel free to, to keep it if you need a Bible. You know, the, uh, the intent of this church from way back has not really changed. Uh, in one word, it's, it's been to a large extent based on simplicity. I remember writing the original vision statement for the church uh, about a year before we actually planted the church. The church is about four and a half year old, years old now, and uh, about a year before that I was asking God for a vision. And, and the part of the vision that, uh, that has grabbed me this morning is the simplicity part, that as we gather together here on Sunday mornings, it, it comes down to basically this. In the presence of God, we will, we will love him, right? As we gather together at the feet of Jesus, at the feet of the throne of the Father, we'll love Him, and then we'll come together and we'll learn from Him. Yeah, isn't that kind of how this morning works? That's If you want a format for how Cornerstone shapes their worship service, it's just that. That we're here to gather together, lock arms as a body of Christ. We are the body, He is the head, and we're to gather in His presence, and we express our love to Him, and then we're going to sit there in His presence and now say, God, I want to learn. I want to learn something. So we're going to his word. James chapter 1. We're going to wrap up the first chapter of James this morning. I know you're excited. We've been in the chapter for now a few weeks. Here's what James says that we've already seen. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. To the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad. Remember these tribes? This is the early church and they are not in the lap of luxury. They are dispersed. They are in hard times. It is not easy being a Christian at this day and time. But here is what James has to say to them. To his brethren, consider it all joy when you encounter various trials, not if, but when, knowing that it is for a purpose, knowing that the testing of your faith, that's what the trials equal out to be. The testing of your faith produces something. It yields something. It fruits something out of your life. Here's what it is. Endurance that you can remain under the load. Eventually, verse 4, you allowing endurance to have its work in your life, it will work out its perfect result so that you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing, that you might become joint heirs with Jesus, that you, you become more sanctified. You are saved, but he is making you. He is using, he's using the hammer and chisel, so to speak, through your life. To, to carve out what is not like Jesus, firstborn among many brethren. We don't always like this, so he goes on. But if any of you lacks wisdom, specifically in context here, wisdom in the hard time. If any of you lacks wisdom regarding this, let him ask God. Let him simply ask. No games, no hoops. Just ask your God because here's who your God is. He gives to all generously without reproach, and it will be most assuredly given to him. How do we ask? We ask in faith, without doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, tossed to and fro, driven by the wind. For man ought not to expect that man, the man who asks without that faith, the man who's tossed to and fro, the man whose God is not God, right? If our God is God, we have an anchor. Remember that? We have an anchor Sure, in this storm, and we're not tossed to and fro. So we go to our God, we cry out for wisdom. 
we cry out knowing that he has the answer, knowing that he's in control. We cry out in faith. We're not double-minded men, verse 8, unstable in our ways. Our God is our anchor. Verse 9, but the brother of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position. He gives us this beautiful passage here that basically answers the question, okay, I understand I'm going through trials. I understand that there's a purpose in the trials. I now understand that I can ask God to give me greater wisdom even when I don't understand the trials that I'm going through, even though I get that he's doing something, but it's still not easy. And James comes and he says, listen, to you who are in humble circumstance, that's you who are going through the trials, you guys who are, who are down here, so to speak, in life. Life is beating you up. I have a new perspective for you. And he gives some of the wisdom that he says we can cry out to God for. I think, I think he blesses us here because he says you can go to God for wisdom. And then I think he starts to give us some of the wisdom that he's gained himself. Namely, this new big picture perspective on all of our life and what God is up to. Look at what he says. The brother of humble circumstances, that's the guy who's getting, getting whooped in this life, is to glory in his high position. What high position? You remember what we saw? It's the high position of your future glory. No matter what your life looks like here, if you're in Christ, you get something greater than you've ever expected here on this earth. And although this life hands you pain, you will get exceeding joy, and you can glory in that right here and right now. So that's what the low guy's perspective is supposed to be. And the rich guy, verse 10, he's to glory in his humiliation. Although your life has put you up here on a pedestal, you're blessed. There will be times when the trials of this life knock you down. How are you supposed to view them? Well, you're supposed to glory in the times where your life is not up here, but you get knocked down to here. Why? Because it tells you something as well. It reminds him of a greater perspective. What is it? Look at what he says. Because like the flowering grass, he gives an illustration here from the Psalms. He will pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass. And the flower that's on the grass, it falls off. And the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too the rich man, in the midst of his pursuits, all the beauty that he has in this life, it will fade away. Although you're up here, guy, listen, in a moment's notice, life can slap you upside the head and you can find yourself down here, right? Yeah? Can that happen? Can that happen with your retirement? Can that happen with your job? Can that happen in your home? Can that happen with your kids? Absolutely. There's a number of ways that that happens every day. That you go from up here to down here. And he says glory in those times where you are literally humbled because what God's doing through that or what he would like to do through that if you allow him, if you, verse 4, let this endurance have its perfect worth, is remind you that in the end, death equals out the whole playing field. And no matter whether we were down here or up here, We all are on the same playing field going into eternity. It's not about where you are in this life necessarily that determines where you are in eternity. He says, let those times where where your life knocks you down, let them be times that remind you that the flower will fade. The flower will fade. But, verse 12, we get a promise, remember this, blessed is the man, either rich or poor. Blessed circumstance or humble circumstance. This applies to both. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial for once he has been approved. Once this testing, trialing process has done its work, check out the promise. Look what we get in the end. Again, a glimpse into eternity. We will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who, remember this big phrase, love him. That's how he, that's how he quantifies that man who can go through these trials, hold on to the anchor, cry out to his God, have a big perspective that gets him through, he understands, guess what? I will be blessed. This serves a purpose. 
even if I don't quite get it, I will be rewarded one day, even for the trials I endure. Last couple of weeks, we looked at the next passage because there is a fear that James had. It's a legitimate fear because we saw, as we, as we looked at it over the last couple of weeks, that we make a mistake sometimes. When life hits us upside the head, when things go wrong, we in our humanity, we in our leftover flesh, that part of us that is yet to be sanctified in this life, it, it causes us to maybe in our theology go the wrong direction. And James says, let me, let me make sure we're not going in the wrong direction here. 13 through 18, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God, he clarifies something here, God is not about that business. God would like to use the trials of your life. He would like to use the hardships of your life to prove and strengthen your faith. But when those trials turn to temptations in your life, don't point back at God and blame him if you fail into temptation. He says God's not to blame. He cannot be tempted by evil. And he himself will not tempt anyone. It's not in the character. It's not in the nature of God to deal in that way. And then he points to the culprit. Remember this? But each one... Each one of us is tempted when? When he is carried away and enticed by what? Our own lust. And we talked about the, the hook being set and the bait being attractive. And we get hooked. We are enticed. We are on the path towards righteousness. And all of a sudden, something catches our eye, right? And remember, we talked about this is your own deal. Whatever it is, it's your own deal. And it pulls you away. It entices you. It woos you in. And we went back to Proverbs and, and we took apart this whole picture that he qualifies here, that he calls lust, right? And we're not just talking about sexual temptation here. He uses that sexual imagery to explain how all of our temptation works. It draws us away. It entices us like the adulterous woman in Proverbs. And we get hooked. Thinking that we're going to find joy, we end up in pain. And so we're the culprit. Our lust does this. Each one tempted when he is carried away and enticed. Now watch how this progresses here because it's going to impact. And the reason I'm going over this is because these words and that context impacts the next passage, the remaining part of the chapter. Now watch this and, and think about this whole sexual, lustful imagery here without sinning in your mind. But think about how he uses this imagery here to talk to us and teach us about sin and temptation. All right, because he's going to utilize it throughout the rest of the passage. Then when lust has conceived, lust plants a seed, okay? Lust plants a seed in us. It has us hooked. And now once that full term of the incubation period of our lust, that seed planted, once it grows to a certain point, right? You getting the whole birth process here going on, all right? What happens? It gives birth to a child. What child? The child of sin. And that sin lives and it grows and in the end, what is its termination? What does it say? Death. That's the life cycle from lust to death. All right? Seed planted, grown, death. Watch this. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Deceived by what? Two things. Don't be deceived by your own lust so you're carried away by something that looks attractive that's not really attractive that will kill you in the end. Don't be deceived in that way. But also his point is don't be deceived into thinking that it was God's fault, remember, because now you understand that it was completely your 
sinful desires that pulled you away from the path of righteousness. Okay, so don't be deceived in that way either. Because here's who our God is. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above. Coming down from the Father of lights. Circle that word Father. With whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. We looked at this passage last week. There's a couple things I want to point out here as we go into verse 18 where we ended last time. In the exercise of His will, this is what God is up to, okay? He's not in the business of birthing sin and death. God is in the business of birthing righteousness. Now watch how he does it and keep that imagery in your mind. Look at what God is up to. As a father, verse 17, he exercises his will, right? And if you want to parallel this to something else, you can draw a circle around his will and draw a line back to our lust. So opposite of our lust, birthing sin, here's what God wants to do. Our father in the exercise of his will, verse 18, he brings forth, he births, okay? He uses the same imagery here. He brought us forth by the word of truth. Now, what is the new seed? We use the seed of our lust to go down the road of temptation. Our father, in his exercising of his will, he wants to birth something. How does he do it? He plants a seed that is the word of truth. You get in the picture here? All right, now look at what he's trying to grow out of that seed. Out of that word of truth, so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. God has an intent in planting that seed in us. Okay? He has a he has a holy and a good intent. That's just the opposite of this pattern that our lust births into sin and death. Now, watch what he says here. Here is the intent of God. And he's going to use an example here that it's not so much about the example. Don't get caught too much up in the example. But he's going to make a point here by using this example of our speaking out rashly and our anger to further help us understand his point here. That God is about birthing righteous creatures. He's not about leading us into temptation. He's not about leading us into sin and death. He's about leading us into life. He is a good and loving God. Watch this. Here's the example, verse 19. This you know, my beloved brethren. Everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. What is God? What kind of creature, verse 18, does the seed of the word of truth, what kind of creature should it birth? Well, it shouldn't birth a guy who is quick, slow to hear, quick to speak, and quick to anger. It births a guy, verse 19, who is quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. The point here is, is that it does something. The seed of the word of truth, opposed to the seed of lust, it births something as well. It births a new creature after the pattern of his own righteousness, of his own holiness. We begin to look more like the Father if his seed is planted in us, okay? Right? My sons look an awful lot like their daddy, okay? And they look an awful like their mom. We look like our parent. With our father as our parent, that seed that is planted in us should grow a child that looks more like him. Amen? That's what he's doing, exercising his will. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Do we get 
in lashing out, being slow to hear, quick to speak, and quick to anger, do we get the result that God intends? Do we get the righteousness of God flexing our own will, being slow to hear, quick to speak, and quick to anger? No, we don't get the intended result. So here's what we need to do. Verse 21, therefore, here's, here's what ought to be the case. Putting aside all filthiness and all that remains in wickedness, in humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. Circle the word received. I've told you that in the book of James, there are more commands in this small little book than any other place in Scripture. They're just jam-packed. There are imperatives everywhere here. This is the imperative of today's passage. It's receive. Exclamation mark. Why is it the imperative? I think it's the imperative because this is where we tend to drop the ball. And this is where we go awry in this truth. That seed is planted in us, but we don't embrace it. We don't embrace the word of truth that God has seeded into us to grow the person he intends to grow in this life. In humility, he says, with meekness or gentleness, that's a word used for Jesus, by the way, in our humility... We come to the word of truth and we ought to receive it. Receive it, church. Embrace it. Own it. To the point that it makes a difference. There ought to be a change from who we were in our old nature into our new nature so that we look more like our new father. Now, keep going. We put aside all filthiness and all that remains in our flesh of wickedness and humility. We receive the word implanted or engrafted. Great picture of what God does for the believer. He grafts us in to the vine that is his son. By the way, what is the word of truth? Well, you're holding the word of truth in one sense. Jesus is also called the truth. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. That would also be Christ. You take your pick. You take your pick. The word of truth is that which brings us. What does it say at the end of that verse? It brings us to salvation. It's able to save our souls. Now here's the implication. Not only is it able to save your souls. Like that's the big thing that it does. But what he's implying there is, is that if it can do something that big, it can also change us. You see that seed implanted and grafted into our soul, it's big enough to save us. It also changes us so that we look more like him. Now, watch his illustration. But prove yourselves to be doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. A guy who's not changed by the word implanted in him, is as foolish as a guy who hears something, hears the truth, but does nothing about it. He says that guy is delusional. Delusional. It's a great word picture. It's a compound word in the Greek, paralogizomai. It's a word that sort of means to walk a parallel or alternate path to the logic given. Para, parallel, logizomai. It's it's an accounting word or it's a a word that means, um, uh, well, we get logic from it and it's to take the mind and to find another path around the truth that is given it's to legitimize it's to rationalize it's that type of word 
We delude ourselves. We have the truth. It has been implanted in us, right? But have we received it? Perhaps not. And when we don't, guess what? There is no result that is intended. And this thing that has the power to save our soul doesn't get used to change us at all. And so James says, listen, that's, that's ridiculous. We're delusional. We delude ourselves. We've, we've somehow twisted our thinking to think we're actually what God has intended us to be, and we're not. Keep going. He's going to give us a beautiful Father's Day picture right here, guys. You're going to get elevated. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, all right, he's like a man. Here you go, ladies. Good illustration you can use against your husband. Here's what a man is like. He's like the guy we don't want to be. He's like the hearer of the word and not the doer. Now, here's what he means. Uh, trivia question, incidentally. Was James married? Answer, yes. Uh, where do we get that? Corinthians, I believe it is, men, uh, mentions that he had a wife. Uh, I get it from this passage right here. Only James having a spouse in his uh, house would be able to paint this picture here. You'll see what I mean. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks at his natural face in the mirror. The, the word natural there could also be translated his beginning face. It's the Greek word that we, we use for Genesis. It, it, could be, it could be said his birth face. Okay, that's what I mean by his natural face. It's the face he was given. Unadulterated, unfixed up, nothing added to it. It's just the face he got when he came out. Okay? It's the face he had from the beginning. He looks at that birth face in the mirror, and here's what he does. See if this isn't true of most of us, guys. For once he's looked at himself and gone away, he's immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. Now, here's why I know James is married. Guys, if... Uh, if I were to uh, put a poll out there of who the last person in the car is every time you leave your house, who would it be? It's going to be your wife. Sorry, ladies. Uh, I was in the car. Kimberly's not here. I, didn't, I hadn't told her this yet. And if I want her to know, I'll tell her myself so you don't have to tell her. Um, we were in the car the other day. We were getting ready to leave to go somewhere. And uh, me and the boys, we were in the car, and she was still doing something in the house. And she would say it's because she has to get all the kids ready and get herself ready, and then I'm already just out there, and now i got the kids out there, and like she's finally got to you know, finish doing what she had to do, right? And so, okay, I buy that. Uh, but we're sitting there. It was great. My five-year-old, uh, almost six-year-old, he's sitting there, and it's hot in the car, and we're, you know, we're just sitting out there waiting. And um, a couple minutes go by, and he's, you know, he's getting agitated. He wants—I think we're going to swim or something. He's wanting to go. He says, "Dad, please go in and tell mom she looks good, so we can leave." <laughs> I didn't coach him. I didn't say a—I didn't say a word, man. Now this is the illustration that James is painting. When a guy goes to the mirror, what happens? Hopefully he brushes his teeth, wipes the, you know, the gook out of his eyes, splashes some water on his face, combs his hair, hopefully, and, uh, he's, you know, and he's out the door. Sorry, I'm not used to having a mic right here. He's out the door, right? That's it. doesn't take a whole lot. Does a couple things, sees his natural face, good enough. He's out the door in the car waiting. I remember the first time I walked into the bathroom and found my wife in the sink in the mirror after we got married. You guys, some of you have seen this? I don't know how, but somehow they contort themselves to where they're actually in the sink sitting about this far from the mirror looking at stuff. I don't know what, I don't know what you're looking at. Or you buy these mirrors that flip over and they have this huge magnifying glass on one side so you can see more of what you don't want to know is there. Right? None of that is on my side of the bathroom. Okay? But I walk in the bathroom sometimes, and she's crawled up. Again, if I want to share this with her, I'll let her know. 
she's up in the sink about this far away, and, and she's got all these tools and things and gizmos, and the sink's just covered with stuff, and I've got a toothbrush, a razor, and that's it. That's it. Some, some gel. Yeah, some gel. And by the way, about the gel thing, um, uh, only a guy could come up with this whole idea of bedhead. Okay, this just furthers my point here, right? You're never going to find any women catching on to this bedhead trend, right? You know what I mean, bedhead deal? They have the, the bedhead idea is this. It invented by a guy who was laying in bed and said, how can, I, how can I get out of the bathroom and away from the mirror even faster? We'll make it cool to make your hair look a wreck, and we'll put stuff in it, and now I'm gone, and I look cool. Done. Okay? All right, now we're exaggerating a little bit, but here, here's James's point. Don't get too far off track here. Here's James's point. A guy goes to the mirror, he does his business, and he moves on. It's just a fact. Right? Some of us stay longer than others, etc. Typically, a guy doesn't take a whole lot. It doesn't take a whole lot of time. A lady, on the other hand, now, and he's not picking on you here, and I think James is wise, and there's another reason I think he's married, is because he doesn't mention the wife in the illustration here. He just lets you infer it. Do you see what he says? Look at the next verse. But the one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man, and it's gender neutral there, will be blessed in what he does. You see, what we should attain to, men and women, is the idea of the picture he paints here, is that when we embrace the word that has been planted in us, whether, whether it's through the word in your hand or whether it's through the word implanted in your heart through the Holy Spirit or whether it's through the word who became flesh who now lives in us, whatever the case may be, as you embrace that, as you command previous verse, receive that. There ought be a change because that word that has been planted in you, it is intended to birth something and it is powerful because it brings you to salvation. So it ought to be changing you along the way. So men, women, don't look into the mirror, which is a picture of God's word of truth. Don't look at it like a guy does going through his bathroom to get out the door. Look at it like a woman does. And when she looks, she abides there for ages and ages. She remains there eternally. But that's the, that's the challenge to us. We don't just look at our natural face and say, that's ah, good enough, and move on. We don't just look into the Word of God and see where we're different and say, oh, well, and move on. When you come into God's house, when you hear from God's Word, when you're challenged by the words in God's songs of praise, we can't walk away unchanged. We've got to be different. That's why, that's why a woman sits there. She sits there to change things. What can I fix? What can I do with all these tools to make it different? And James says that's how we ought to be when we come to the mirror that is the word that is implanted in us. When it shows us who we really are. When we see all the imperfections. We can't just walk away. We've got to say, I've got to fix that for the glory of God. We ought to be, verse 25, the one who looks intensely at the perfect law. That's a reference to Psalm 19. The word of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The law of the Lord is perfect, Psalm 19, reviving the soul. The law of liberty, he calls it. All these are different ways of saying the word of truth that was planted in us in verse 18, that was implanted in us in verse 21. Now he calls it 
the perfect law, Psalm 19. He calls it the law of liberty, Psalm 119. We ought to abide by it. Not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer. It does something. It has its designed effect on us. This man, look at the result. This is the man that will be blessed by what he does. Now, he comes back to the illustration. Watch this. If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue. That's back to the example in verse 19 and 20. If there's no change, and you are slow to hear, quick to speak, and quick to anger, that doesn't indicate a change. It doesn't indicate that you've embraced the seed and allowed it to birth something in your life that resembles your father who exercised his will in planting it in you. you're not able to bridle your tongue but you let your heart be deceived this man's check this out a hard word remember what i said about james is a punch in the throat this man's religion is worthless it's like he says that whatever seed is in you i don't know what seed it is but it's not god's whatever seed you're you're saying has been planted in you it's a dud because it's not growing anything that looks like the father Let me give you the last verse and we'll be done. 27. Here's what it ought to look like, guys. Here's what our church ought to look like. Here's what your life ought to look like. 27. Pure and undefiled religion. It could also be translated this way. Pure religion, undefiled in the sight of our God and Father, is this. Now, that's that's got to be our goal, right? A, A religion that's not a dud. A faith that's not fraudulent, right? Our theme of James, we don't want a faith that's fraudulent. We don't want to be fakes. We want to be the real deal. James, help us to know that we're the real deal. Well, our religion ought not to be a fraud. That seed isn't a dud. Pure religion. Us being undefiled in the sight of our God and Father. It looks like this. And this is just a sample, okay? But it's a sample of pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God. Look at his example. To visit the orphans. Could also be translated the bereaved. Don't just limit that to little kids. And widows in their distress. And keep oneself unstained by the world. Um, I finished where I started. Pure and undefiled religion is not is not very complicated, is it? Our intent of this church is not very complicated, guys. Um, you could tell by uh, the Dad Rocks shirt that we're not here about ritual, right? We're not. We're not here to put on a good performance. We're not here to gather together so we could all check off our Sunday box and go home and not be changed. The intent of this church is to gather together as the body of Christ at the feet in the presence of our Jesus Express how deeply in love we are with Him because He first loved us. And as we're sitting at His feet, we say, God, what do you want to say to me? As we open His Word, we're, we're hopefully at His feet with that heart, the heart that says, I don't want to leave here the same way. I don't want to leave here the same way. I want my life to be 
different. I don't want it to look like the guy who is slow to hear, quick to speak, quick to anger. Can I just, can I just confess for my wife and I? Um, a couple nights ago, um, got the kids to bed, and that's always kind of an ordeal. And we kind of, you know, at 8.30, we kind of just take this breath, and then we're trying to clean up the house. She was frustrated about something, came out of, the, came out of one room, and I was in the living room trying to do something. And uh, she comes in, and she says, what are you doing? And uh, I responded in all grace and compassion, as I always do. I said, what do you mean, what am I doing? I was doing something that I thought we had both agreed on, and she remembered telling me that she told me not to do that, and she explained it to me, and I conveniently forgot that whole part of the conversation from the previous night. So I'm looking at her like she's crazy. She's looking at me like I'm crazy. Neither one of us were quick to hear. We were both quick to speak, and we both ended up quick to anger. And there was no righteousness of our God accomplished in that moment, I will guarantee you. And as we bowed up on each other, uh, we finally got to a point where we just kind of separated for a moment. And I'm sitting there in my chair thinking, what in the world are we arguing about? As always, it's nothing major. It was no grand world you know, accomplishing argument here. It was something dumb. And here we are, bowed up on each other because we were both slow to listen to each other. Quick to speak, pop off at the mouth in the midst of the trial. You get the whole context. It's, it's amazing why the, the illustration he chose here is because in this chapter one trials, what is the first thing we always do when life, when life throws us a hardball? Well, we pop off at the mouth. That's the first thing we do. We get angry. Um, so I sat there, and, and I'm convinced, although we haven't necessarily talked about it, I'm convinced that uh, God was doing the same thing in both of our hearts, just saying, what are you two doing? And I had already been studying this passage, and I said to the Lord, um, number one, Lord, uh, thank you for your word. Number two, you don't always have to apply it in my life so directly before I preach it. Um, but the question came to me is, okay, are you going to embrace the word that's been planted in you? Are you going to change this wrong attitude, this wrong activity in your life, in your heart? Are you going to apologize where you need to apologize? Are you going to reconcile where you need to reconcile? Are you going to change? Are you going to keep going your, your dog-headed way? Are you going to go the way of your own lusts? And remember, that's not just a sexual picture. It's a picture of my own desires. Am I going to go the way of my own will? Or am I going to go the way that God has intended his seed to go in my life? To birth beautiful fruit for the righteousness of God. And that's our challenge. That's our challenge. That's why we come together. That's why we come together. The guys are going to come. We're going to do one more song. And uh, they emailed me this week, and they said, Hey, Pastor, uh, you, care if, um, you care if we do this last song sitting on the steps of the stage? I, said, I emailed back. I said, Why? I knew why. I wanted, I wanted them to make sure they knew why. And uh, the email I got back said something like this. Um, Quote me, fix me if I'm wrong here, Ricky. It said, um, we just kind of feel like um, sometimes this stuff up here gets in the way. And maybe it looks more like a performance than we intend it to look. And the truth is, we, we kind of just want to take the makeup off and be real in our worship to the Lord. And I said, yeah, that's, that's good. That's good. I said, you know what, let's, let's do that on the last song. So if this is your first time... Uh, at Cornerstone, here's what you need to know. And if this is your hundredth time at Cornerstone, here's what you need to be reminded of. 
Our goal here is not to play the church game. It's not about some churchianity, country club, Sunday thing we do. We're here to call men and women to true discipleship, true following of Jesus Christ. And that means where our lives differ from what His Word says they ought to be, that Word that has been planted in us, where our lives differ, namely, from that of Jesus Himself, we're here to change. All makeup is gone. As we come to the mirror that is God's Word, it's time to take off the makeup. Some of us have come. Some of us come Sunday in and Sunday out with a whole lot of makeup on, fixed up, looking good spiritually, looking nice. How are you doing? Doing great. And the truth is, our spirits they are not resembling our Father at all. The cry of, uh, of this pastor, the cry of this worship team, the cry of the leaders of your church is that our church be extraordinary. I've been saying that all 2010. I've been asking God lately what it means. I think it means James chapter 1. Pure and undefiled religion. Before our God and Father is this. Doing life together in life groups. Making pancakes for people who need pancakes. Praying with people who need to be prayed for. When people have cancer, we're, we're ministering to them. We're wrapping our arms of love around each other. We're encouraging each other. We're challenging each other. We're holding each other accountable. When we come together, we're crying out to our God with as much as we have. We see this place as not something we ought to do once every two or three weeks. We see it as our, our body, hands, feet, arms, extensions of us as we gather together under Christ who is our head. So we're going we're gonna to sing this last song. I'm going to just ask you to stay seated. And um, ask yourself if your Christianity has been pure and undefiled before the God and the Father. Where it's not, ask Him where you need to change it. Pretty simple. Some of you have maybe heard about your sin and your separateness from our God in a way this morning that you have never been impacted by it before. I, I pray that the Holy Spirit has maybe spoken to someone here that, that the seed has not yet even been planted. And in one sense, you've been reading someone else's mail in James chapter 1. The truth is, God's Word is a love letter to all of us. It's a love letter to His children. It doesn't have to be someone else's mail. It's a word written to you. It's a word he wants to write on your heart. Today is the day of salvation. If you've never embraced the word of truth, today is the day he's calling you to do it. He's a good and gracious God. He's a good and gracious God. Let's sing. You pray. Do business with God.